The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 31 of Synods and Councils, Paragraphs 3 to 5. It belongs to synods and councils, ministerially, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God, appointed thereunto in his word. Paragraph 4. All synods or councils, since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Paragraph 5. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical, and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice, for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 92 of This We Confess. Last time out we considered the opening paragraphs to chapter 31 of Synods and Councils, And for the better government and edification of the church, there ought to be gatherings of church elders, called synods or councils. And the Westminster Divines believed that civil government could call a synod to consult and advise on matters of religion. But in the absence of a godly civil government, the church could call her own gatherings. But what is the point? Admittedly, synods and councils show us that the church is not independent, but rather interdependent. But is there anything more than that when it comes to synods and councils? The Westminster Divines say yes, and they offer three reasons for the existence of synods and councils. Firstly, in paragraph 3, we are told that it belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience. So herein we have the first reason for synods and councils. Any controversy of faith 
or any case of conscience within the local church can be referred to a synod or a council. We see evidence of this in the scriptures. In Matthew 18 and verses 17 to 20, Jesus outlines for us how complaints are to be handled within the church. If your brother refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, says Jesus. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And therefore, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, if there is ever a controversy of faith, then we do not have to try and figure it out on our own. Synods and councils exist to debate and to discuss and to determine the outcome of controversies of faith and cases of conscience. In my own denomination, the Kirk Session can debate and discuss on issues surrounding church controversies. And if they do not reach an agreement, they can pass the discussion to their local presbytery. And the presbytery does not stand alone, because in cases that are not clear, it can be passed on up the chain to what is called the Judicial Commission. In other words, there are synods and councils to help us when we come across controversies of faith and cases of conscience. Now, I will freely admit that within our system, we do not always get it right. But I am constantly thankful for those particular levels of synods and councils which offer help to the local church. The alternative is that we could declare ourselves to be an independent church, and then when a case of controversy breaks out, we have absolutely no help whatsoever. This has happened, and we have witnessed churches tearing themselves apart because no one has any authority to decree one way or another. Synods and councils exist to help us whenever there are cases of controversy or conscience within the church. But secondly, the Westminster Divines tell us that synods and councils exist to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church. So synods and councils exist and their primary focus is the worship of God and how the local fellowships are run and governed. Once again, we see this in God's word. In Acts chapter 15, the famous Council of Jerusalem happens. And in verse 27, here is what we read. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. At the Council of Jerusalem, we see a council gathering together to deal with an issue of controversy. The issue was whether you needed to be circumcised or not in order to be saved. The council met, debated and discussed, and they came to the conclusion that all that they would lay upon the church was that they would abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what had been strangled, and from sexual immorality. The Jerusalem council 
did not decide that salvation needed circumcision. Instead, they offered practical advice that it would help local congregations in their worship and in their government. Imagine a congregation in those days who had several members who believed that circumcision was necessary. The decision of the Council of Jerusalem would speak against these individuals and by the grace of God would bring peace to that particular church. And we see the impact that the reading of the letter had on the congregations. Down in Antioch, as the letter was read, the congregation rejoiced because of its encouragement. The Council of Jerusalem was not there to dictate and direct and to rob Christians of their freedom. But instead it was there, just like councils to this day, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public of worship of God and government of his church. And so synods and councils carry out three functions. Firstly, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience. And secondly, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public of worship of God and government of his church. But thirdly and finally, synods and councils exist to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same. And so in this third function of synods and councils, we see protection for church officers and protection for church members. Imagine a church where the elders of that particular fellowship decide that they are no longer Christians. Imagine such a place where the gospel is cast aside and another false gospel is preached from the pulpit and believed by the elders. What are those members of that church to do? Are they to start arguments and fight and war and seek out help in the local newspapers? No, perish the thought. Instead, due to the existence of synods and councils, members of such a church can go to the various synods and councils above them seeking help and guidance when such an issue comes up. Equally, imagine a church where the church officers, the elders, are faithfully proclaiming the word of God, but it is not received by the church members, and the church members cause endless trouble and are filled with gossip and slander for their leaders. What should be done? Perhaps the leaders, the church elders, should just pack up and leave and plant another church. Or, perhaps, they can refer the matter to local synods and councils for help and for guidance. In the third use of synods and councils, which is to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively determine the same, the synods and councils act as a guard and a help for local fellowships. They can listen to our complaints, they can listen to cases of maladministration, and with the authority that Christ has placed in them, they can determine the same. Synods and councils are there for help to the local church. So whenever a synod or a council receives such a complaint and authoritatively determines the same, how are we to receive their decision? The Westminster Divines tell us, as this paragraph comes to a close, they say that if we receive their decrees and determinations and we find them to be in keeping or consonant to the word of God, then we are to receive those determinations with reverence and submission. If a synod or a council meets and it decides on a particular issue, and that issue is in keeping with the word of God, then whether we like it or not, 
and whether we want to submit to it or not, we are to come to a point of Christian maturity where we receive that decision with reverence and submission. Not only, say the divines, because that decision agrees with the word of God, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. And so we are to take seriously synods and councils. They make decisions, and if they are in keeping with the word of God, we are to abide by them. But also we are to respect synods and councils, because they are part of God's design for his church, and he has invested power within them. So we are to receive any decision made by a synod or council in keeping with the word of God, with reverence and submission. However, with that stated, we are also to remember that synods and councils are not perfect. Paragraph 4 states exactly that. All synods and councils since the time of the apostles, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. This is entirely practical teaching from the Westminster Divines. We should never look to synods and councils as the rule of our faith or practice. We must always realise that synods and councils can get things wrong, and indeed have got things wrong. The scriptures, the word of God, is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. And we see in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the Bereans were getting together and they were receiving the word with all eagerness. And they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And we are to not allow our confidence and faith to rest in the wisdom of men, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 5, but instead in the power of Almighty God. For the church of Jesus Christ was not built on the foundation of synods and councils, but instead of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As Presbyterians, we could do well to remember this. We have our subordinate standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and our catechisms of our church. We also have multiple synods and councils. We have Kirk Sessions, Presbyteries, Synods and a General Assembly. But none of these groups and bodies are the rule of our faith or practice. And indeed, this confession which we study today is but a subordinate standard. It is less than our supreme standard, which is the word of God. So we are to understand this, and we are to be men and women of the word. However, just as we accept and freely admit that synod and councils are not perfect, they have got things wrong, and they will again, we are still to consider them useful when it comes to our faith and our practice. We are to listen to the wisdom of synods and councils, if again it is in keeping with the word of God. We are to consider them helpful for our Christian walk and for our local churches. We are to seek them out when war rages in our local fellowships, and we are to submit to synods and councils as is right and fitting in the Lord. They may not be perfect, say the Westminster divines, but they are certainly helpful. And with that stated, we move to the final paragraph of this chapter. Paragraph 5 states that synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing 
but that which is ecclesiastical, and they are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. And so as this chapter comes to a close, the Westminster divines are clear about the remit of synods and councils. They are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical, or in other words, that which is related to the church. The business of any synod or council is not the politics of the day, but rather the state of the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are many denominations at times who have been seduced by the politics of the age and many denominations who have commented on things like climate change and other issues which trouble this world. But synods and councils are not to handle or conclude anything which goes beyond the remit of the local church. They are to consider the state of the church. They are to consider the progress of the gospel they are to consider any issues of controversy which trouble the church. They are there to consider any maladministration in local fellowships throughout a particular denomination. Synods and councils are there to handle or conclude nothing but that which relates to the church of Jesus Christ. We see this in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is approached by a young man who says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus replies, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? The Church of Christ has no business in being an arbiter of family squabbles and wills and inheritance. Instead, we are to remember the words of Christ, who in John 18 and verse 36 reminds us that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Again, in paragraph 5, we realise the two cities. There is the city of God and the city of man. And so synods and councils belong firmly to the city of God, and therefore they are not to handle or conclude anything that comes from the city of man. However, there are two exceptions to this rule, according to the Westminster Divines. At times they say, we can approach the commonwealth or approach the government of our land by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary. What does that look like in this modern age? Well, for example, in Northern Ireland, abortion has recently been introduced to our land. It is right and good and proper for Christians to approach the local commonwealth and appeal to them to change their ways and appeal to them to rethink their decisions. We come without arrogance, but instead we come by way of humble petition in the name of Christ. So we do not seek to intermeddle with civil affairs unless by way of humble petition in extraordinary cases. Therefore, I believe that as a church, we should not always be running to the government about every single issue, but instead, as it were, we should keep our powder dry until there are cases extraordinary. And then in those moments, we are to come by way of humble petition before the civil authorities. And the second exception to the rule 
is that if we are required by the civil magistrate to debate or discuss and to advise, then we should certainly do it by way of advice and for satisfaction of conscience. So business of synods and councils is entirely ecclesiastical. It is entirely concerned with the Church of Jesus Christ. However, at times there will be extraordinary cases whereby we will approach the civil magistrate humbly and respectfully. And also there may be times that the civil magistrate seeks the wisdom of a local church, and therefore a synod or a council may answer in such a moment. My friends, when it comes to chapter 31, I am fully aware that the discussion around synods and councils might seem incredibly dry, dull and boring. But I do hope that as we have worked our way through these five paragraphs, we will realise the absolute blessing that we have in the Reformed Church. We do not believe that we are independent, us against the world, but instead we know and acknowledge and confess our interdependence. We should be thankful for our leaders. We should be thankful for our sessions, our presbyteries, our synods, councils and our general assembly. It might seem dull and dusty, but they have been given power and authority by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. May they guide us well. May they be a constant help to the church. May they always advise in keeping with the word of God. And when synods and councils decree on any subject, may we humbly accept it with maturity, reverence and submission. For Christ's sake, who remains the sole king and head of his church. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. What are the three functions for synods and councils? Question 2. How should we receive decisions of synods and councils if the decision is in keeping with the word of God? Question 3. Should we expect synods and councils to always get things right? Question 4. What is the only perfect standard of faith and practice in the church? And question 5. What should the business of synods and councils be? And what are the two exceptions to this rule? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. Mm -hmm.